to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. The news just didn't stop coming this week, more even than usual. So let's get right down to it. The major story of the week continued to be Iran, and it is a strange and convoluted story that includes a threat of fierce revenge by Iran for massive retaliation that fizzled out in the middle, a nighttime air attack that never happened, popular demonstrations against the Iranian government in 274 cities throughout Iran, a commercial airline shot out of the sky as it took off from Tehran airport. The UK ambassador to Iran, who was arrested as he went to get a haircut, and rumors that Iranian leaders are sending their families out of the country. Now that's a lot of strange. And to add to all the confusion overseas, immediately after the announcement that Soleimani had been killed, the Democrats in Washington began embracing America's enemies in Iran and eulogizing Soleimani as a victim of U.S. aggression. Instead of praising the president for taking out one of the most vicious and cruel terrorists in the world today, who was responsible for the brutal murders of over 600 American personnel and the maiming of thousands more, they found the president, once again, guilty without a shred of evidence or even a reasonable rationale. And here's another thing. When the news began coming out about the Iranian people demonstrating against the Khamenei leadership, the Democrats became silent. No words of encouragement for the people of Iran. No praise for President Trump for giving them his support. Hating Trump, it seems, is reason enough for loving our enemies. Which brings us back to the lethal strike against Qasem Soleimani. I want to make something really clear. Despite what the Democrats are trying to make us believe, President Trump had both the moral and the legal authority to authorize that strike. Just like Obama had the legal and moral authority to bomb Libya and to take out Osama bin Laden and to carry out hundreds of drone strikes during his tenure in the White House. Now, there is no way that it was okay for Obama, but not for Trump. That double standard just doesn't fly. The duplicity of the Democrats is beyond outrageous. It is a downright betrayal of everything that this country stands for. What in the world is wrong with those people? Last week, Pelosi complained, quote, the administration took this action without the consultation of Congress and without respect for Congress's war powers that were granted to it by the Constitution, unquote. But when President Obama decided to bomb Libya back in 2011 after no Americans had been killed, Pelosi said just the opposite. She said that the president didn't need congressional authorization to launch such attacks. 
Well, my friends, that's not really a surprise because it's very clear that Trump derangement syndrome has taken over the Democrats so totally that they've been falling all over themselves to condemn the president for just about everything. Like the killing of a brutal terrorist whom they lionize as some kind of national hero, the downing of a commercial airliner, and worst of all, not giving the Democrats advance notice of the strike against Soleimani so they could warn him. And by the way, when the Democrats insisted that there was no evidence of an imminent terrorist attack that justified the killing of Qasem Soleimani, they underscored their own incredible inability to recognize reality, truth, and honesty regarding an event that made every American in the Middle East and beyond safer by far. We know that the man was a monster and that he was responsible for killing and maiming thousands of American soldiers in Iraq. And the attacks that he was planning, the ones that we know of, included four embassies in the Middle East. And the plan was to carry out attacks not unlike the Benghazi attacks, in which the embassies would be destroyed and the people would be either killed or captured and kept as hostages. The Iranians also know that he was a monster because he killed and tortured thousands of his own people. Only the Democrats, it seems, haven't figured that out. But here's something that many Americans don't know, don't understand about Iran, because we're used to demonstrations and free speech. So when we saw the millions of people show up for the funeral of Soleimani, many Americans believed it. Why wouldn't they? We were told that the Iranian people revered this man and turned up in the millions to mourn him. Many Americans didn't know that the Iranian people didn't all come out because of love or sadness and that they definitely were not in mourning. Because here's the reality. The IRGC brings people out by the thousands to these demonstrations by force. They order them to come or else. This is a country where people are rounded up in the middle of the night and never heard from again, where demonstrators are shot in the street in cold blood, and where dissidents are arrested, carted off to prison, tortured, raped, and often executed without a trial and without counsel. So when the IRGC shows up at their doors and tells them to come out to the funeral, you can bet they go. The real situation in today's Iran, however, is changing. This can be seen in the growing demonstrations by Iranians themselves against their government. So here's part of the explanation as to why things are changing. Iran has been suffering under American sanctions that have turned their oil revenues down to a trickle. More than 95% of their former oil revenues have disappeared. These lost revenues have led to an economic crisis in Iran in which the cost of living has skyrocketed and the Iranian people have suffered great deprivation. The demonstrations began in October when Iranians woke up one morning to find that the government had doubled the price of gasoline in the middle of the night. And they were furious. And they came out into the streets to protest. That was the beginning of these demonstrations. And they haven't stopped. Because Iranians were already suffering under the harsh realities of a failing economy. And that price jump 
was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. The people of Iran took to the streets. In the intervening months, the demonstrations have spread and grown in size and ferocity. Today, Iran's 31 provinces are all in rebellion, in spite of the fact that more than 1,500 demonstrators have been killed in cold blood by the IRGC since the demonstrations began, and over 10,000 demonstrators have been arrested. Not only are the Iranian people not stopping their revolt, they've begun fighting back. Iran has not seen this kind of popular uprising or violence on the streets since the 1979 revolution that brought the religious zealots to power. The people are rebelling, and they're in the streets chanting, Death to the dictators! And, Our enemy is right here! They lie to us that it's America! In the demonstrations that followed Soleimani's funeral, they tore down the funeral posters of the man they supposedly revered and called for the fall of the Khamenei government. Meanwhile, the forces of the Iranian government are out on the streets, beating the demonstrators and firing live bullets at them. The raw courage and determination of the Iranian people are nothing short of awe-inspiring. It seems that President Trump's campaign of maximum pressure against Iran is working, and the Iranian government is losing. Because change is happening. I mentioned before that some of the senior leaders in the country have begun sending their families out of the country. That's a sign that all is not well among the leadership and that they are afraid that their government will face a coup and it will fall. And it's becoming abundantly clear that the police and the IRGC soldiers and even the vicious besieged forces cannot handle the growing uprising in more than 270 places because it's taking place in nearly every city in Iran. At best, they can only handle a few at any one time. And every day they are losing ground and the popular rebellion is growing. And it's becoming more and more clear that the defection of the faceless mob is gathering strength and it's going beyond the street. On Tuesday, two Iranian news anchors quit their jobs on air and apologized to the Iranian people for lying to them. So it looks like there is a momentum building that is gathering power and it does not look like it will stop anytime soon. It looks like the government of Iran is outnumbered outsmarted, and may be due for a major fall. And here's another thing that's working against the Iranian government. America has an extraordinary intelligence network that is active throughout the region. Between signal intelligence, electronic intelligence, satellite intelligence, and human intelligence, the United States has been able to preempt many of the recent events going on in the region. It's true that the attack on the embassy in Baghdad seems to have caught us by surprise. But we had eight hours warning for the two rounds of attacks on the Al-Assad and Erbil military bases in Iraq, and that warning gave our soldiers who were stationed there time to find safety and security in the shelters until the missile attacks were over. No Americans were hurt in those attacks. And when those attacks fizzled out, because the threat of an aerial attack by American planes became an imminent threat, it was another sign that Iran 
was blinking. And the aerial attack was imminent. B-22 bombers took off from Diego Garcia, and F-22s launched from the Iserlik NATO base in Turkey. They were headed for Iranian launch sites and nuclear facilities. Iran could see them coming. So the threat of an aerial attack by American fighter planes was all it took for Iran to announce that their so-called retaliation was over, and they stopped firing missiles on the bases. The planes in the air turned back at the Iranian border. And there was no aerial attack that night. There was a lesson in the events of that night, though. America's show of force worked, and Iran pulled back in the face of that threat. I wonder if they would have done that several months ago, when they were feeling stronger and more confident. But to make it even clearer where our American hearts are, our own Secretary of State said this, quote, The voice of the Iranian people is clear. They are fed up with the regime's lies, corruption, ineptitude, and brutality of the IRGC under Khamenei's kleptocracy. We stand with the Iranian people who deserve a better future, unquote. That was a very important statement. It's one in which our words back up our deeds. Do you remember the Green Revolution in Iran during the Obama years? We gave them neither words nor deeds. We watched helplessly as Iranians died in the streets, but Obama ignored them. No words of support came from Washington, and certainly he took no actions, gave no signs that the American president had their back. Because he didn't. But now the message is coming through loud and clear, and at a time when the government is ripe for a big fall. So we shall have to wait and see what happens next. But if my instincts are correct, and if all the intel that has been coming across the airways is also correct, as it has been all along, we should be seeing some big changes coming to Iran in the near future. What is happening now in the Middle East is historic. Allegiances are shifting and realigning. And the people of Iran are rising up against the tyranny that has suppressed and subjugated them for 40 years. But there is one more area of deep concern. The Iranian government is also dealing with internal divisions. On the one hand, there are the Ayatollah Khamenei and the Mullahs. The new head of the IRGC, General Esmail Ghani, reports directly to the Ayatollah and answers only to him. And then there is the government of President Rouhani, which is more political than religious, and which some analysts are saying may be in jeopardy as things on the street get increasingly out of hand. The reality, my friends, is that the situation gets more complicated every day, and the immediate future of Iran is very much of an unknown. The Iranian people are in great jeopardy if their continuing demonstrations against the government bring the IRGC to a point of frustration that they are allowed to mow the people down at will. Will doing this give them victory over the people and allow them to maintain their grip on the reins of power? The intermittent shooting has already begun. Today, as far as we know, there are roughly 148,000 fighters in the elite IRGC. But the population of Iran is 84 million, and many of them are now demonstrating in the streets and showing that they are ready to die for their freedom. But the IRGC has the guns. 
The Iranian regime may still be full of lethal surprises. Don't forget, China and Russia are still in the mix, and so is North Korea, and so is Turkey. And the leaders of these countries may yet have a few nasty tricks up their sleeves as well. Will they come to Iran's rescue, or will they allow the regime to fall? Is this story confusing? Well, if it is, remember, it's a very convoluted situation with many moving parts. But stay tuned, because I will continue to cover this for you and bring you the latest every week on the Friedman Report. Well, it's time for a quick break, and when I come back, I want to talk to you about some of the things that are going on in the rest of the world. In Hong Kong, for example, where demonstrations have slowed down for a very unexpected reason. And in Washington, where the dystopia continues to bloom. And in Israel, where a new weapon, an extraordinary weapon, is their latest contribution to the future of warfare. And in Australia, where the rampant fires are bringing out the best and the worst in people. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Okay, so let's talk a little politics. Nancy Pelosi finally promised to send the articles of impeachment to the United States Senate, and she can't explain why she held them up in the first place. Lots of people are talking about how she insisted on rushing through the impeachment hearings in Congress, and then she held them back and everyone went on vacation. And when they returned to Washington, she still insisted on holding on to the articles. When they were running the impeachment hearings, Nadler and Schiff had both argued that Donald Trump's tenure in the White House represented a national emergency and that the only way to save the nation from another so-called stolen election was to move quickly before the 2020 elections. Fast forward to January 2020. Absolutely necessary to get it done because it's a national emergency? Not here. Pelosi continued holding up the process until she decided it was time. And during that time, she tried to bulldoze the Senate 
into running the impeachment trial her way. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wasn't having any of it, and with good reason. Congress had had its turn. First, the Intelligence Committee, and then the Judiciary Committee ran a sham parade of biased witnesses, nearly all of whom were Democrat loyalists, and only one of whom actually had first-hand knowledge of the issues relating to the impeachment. And the one witness who had first-hand knowledge, Ambassador Sondland, who actually spoke to Trump about the so-called quid pro quo that was more or less the center of things, he exonerated the president. But in these hearings, Republicans were not allowed to call their own witnesses, and they were often challenged when they tried to question the Democrats' witnesses. Honestly, it was a kangaroo court from beginning to end. The Democrats were quite transparent in their attempts to skew their outcome from the beginning, and their actions were despicable. And in the meantime, while all this was going on, almost no work was being done in Congress. Impeachment mania ruled the day and took precedent over everything else, including, and especially, the real business of Congress. So when Pelosi pulled her trick of holding up the articles of impeachment, it was just one more ploy to promote the Democrat agenda. In the end, it was the fastest and most disreputable impeachment process in American history. The committee wrote two articles of impeachment that contained no charges for impeachable crimes, as set out by the Constitution. Yet nearly every Democrat in the House voted to impeach anyway, using Pelosi's talking points as justification. The facts were beside the point. Maybe that's why Pelosi tried to hold back the articles from the Senate. Maybe she knew that she had no case. Now, finally, the Senate will hear the articles, and McConnell will decide whether a trial is even warranted. In my view, the articles of impeachment should be thrown out on their face because they are without merit. The entire process, as well as the final product, has been a travesty and will remain a blot on our history for its blatant bias and pure, unadulterated corruption by the Democrats. Nancy Pelosi's role in all this was astonishing and appalling and incredibly stupid. Aside from being ridiculously arrogant, her actions contradicted past statements that she made and honestly made no sense. In all this, the major actors, Adam Schiff, Gerald Nadler, and Nancy Pelosi, together, made a mockery of our democratic process and set a precedent for future efforts to unseat a president without adhering to constitutional guidelines and without providing due process or basic constitutional rights to the president. This whole sequence of events needs to be challenged and discredited in a court of law because the accused, the President of the United States, was deprived of his constitutionally guaranteed rights under the Fifth Amendment, which assures that no person shall be, that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law." Unquote. The president was denied an unbiased tribunal, the right to present evidence, the opportunity to be represented by counsel, the right to cross-examine adverse witnesses, the right to face his accuser, and much more. The behavior of the Schiff-Nadler-Pelosi trio must be legally challenged in order to avoid a future repetition of this cheap and ugly process.
And there's one more thing that happened at the beginning of this week. Nancy Pelosi said this, quote, Trump won't be president next year one way or another, unquote. Was that a threat one way or another? Has Pelosi become completely unhinged? Nancy Pelosi needs to be retired. She is at once demanding, divisive, and incoherent. And yet she holds the most important job in Congress, and she is in the line of succession to the presidency. She needs to go. The language of the left has completely disconnected from civil discourse. In fact, civil discourse is hardly possible anymore when it comes to politics. Accusations and name-calling and verbal violence is all that we have left in the Democrat vocabulary. You know, I had a conversation with a liberal friend the other day. She asked me a political question, just one question. She made sure I understood that, just one question. But when I tried to answer, she interrupted me and said she didn't want to hear it. When did we get so lost that we can no longer even discuss issues that we disagree on. I may have told you this story before, but I think it's important. I remember one Saturday when I lived in Jerusalem, I spent the afternoon with friends and we discussed politics. There were two conservatives and three liberals. And it must have gotten a little heated because the downstairs neighbors asked us to pipe down. It was Shabbat, the Sabbath, and they were trying to take an afternoon siesta on this day of rest. So we continued our conversation, but more quietly. Now my point is this. My friends and I talked, and we argued, and we agreed, and we disagreed. But we talked. And after we stopped talking about politics, we were still friends. And then we talked about our kids and shared the neighborhood gossip. When was the last time any of us here in the United States were able to do that here in the land of the free? I can't remember, and it's very sad. Because until we have these conversations again, until we can talk about the things we disagree on, the divide between us will continue to grow, and the solutions to our common problems will continue to remain out of reach. And speaking of Israel, here's another story. There's a new weapon in Israel's arsenal. On January 8th, Israel's Ministry of Defense announced a dramatic breakthrough in laser weapon technology that will boost Israel's ability to intercept rockets, artillery, and mortars. When it is perfected, this laser-based system will also be able to shoot down drones and neutralize anti-tank missiles as well. According to the Defense Ministry, the breakthrough came when it was able to take electric-powered laser systems and focus their beams on longer ranges, regardless of weather conditions. The system is based on high-energy lasers that will be deployed in three configurations. The first is on the ground to s supplement the capabilities of the Iron Dome air defense system, which is able to shoot down rocket and missile threats in the air. The second configuration will be a mobile laser weapon that can be placed on board military vehicles in the battlefield. And the third version will be mounted on drones to be fired in the air. 
These laser weapons can fire continuously and at far lower cost than any other conventional system. They will support conventional systems with an extra layer of defense against rockets as well as military or civilian-made drones. Warfare is entering a new phase of energy warfare, and Israel is at the forefront of development. War is hell, my friends, but if you have to fight one, it pays to have the best equipment. Now here's another story, and it's a, it's a very sad one. It's about the fires that are raging in Australia. These fires are historic, and it may take decades for the continent down under to recover. Even as I tell you this, nearly 12.5 million acres have been consumed by fire and at least 25 people, including two volunteer firefighters, have been killed so far. More than 2,000 homes have been destroyed. You know, considering how enormous and intense these fires are, that is a gratefully small number of casualties. But of course, every life is an incalculable loss. And in the brush, it is estimated, and this is a horrifying number, that nearly 500 million wild animals have died in the fires. Koalas, wallabies, kangaroos, it is heartbreaking when nature devours its young, and when it happens in such astronomical numbers, it is difficult to wrap your head around it. Now, in addition to the thousands of firefighters working through the affected areas of the country, 3,000 Army, Navy, and Air Force reservists have also been called up and will be added to those fighting the fire. To give you an idea of how extensive these fires are, until now, just until now, the fires have consumed areas of land that are altogether larger than the state of New Jersey. The sky over wide swaths of Australia is orange and the air is thick with carbon dust. And it's far from over. My friends, it's all bad news. But the worst is that Australia is just in the middle of its fire season and it will be months before these fires are finally extinguished. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Australia who still have so much to suffer through. Now here's a story that made me smile. When President Donald Trump and Melania arrived at the Mercedes-Benz Superdome in New Orleans, to attend the college football playoff national championship game between LSU and Clemson. The reception they got was amazing. When they walked out onto the field, they were greeted with a thunderous applause, cheers, and chants of USA and four more years. It was a spontaneous outburst that once again showed how much the American people really love and appreciate their president. After the president and Melania went to their box to watch the game, they were joined for a time by actor Vince Vaughn, who stayed on to chat and then shook hands with the president before he left. Somehow, of course, in today's world, this was caught on video. Vaughn is not shy about his conservative views on guns and taxes or his support for limited government. 
And even though the crowd at the game cheered the president enthusiastically, the vultures who inhabit Twitter couldn't tolerate even the most innocent show of respect by one of the Hollywood elite, even though he is not shy about being a conservative. After the video showing the handshake was released on Twitter, the backlash was the kind of thing for which Twitter has become famous. Not surprisingly, Twitter does not represent the American people, and generally has a far-left following that doesn't have any problem demanding that everyone else thinks like they do. Happily, there's also a presence on Twitter of people like the president, who gives some balance to this bizarre form of communication. And I think that because of him, Twitter has become a conveyor of high-level diplomatic conversation, in which leaders of countries around the world use it to communicate their thoughts to other leaders at the same time that they inform their constituents of their positions. Not private, but extremely effective. So even though Vaughn got a bit of a raw response from the left for his spontaneous meeting with the president, good for him. He didn't get canceled, because a man like Vaughn doesn't get canceled. He stands up for what he believes, and doesn't, it seems, get bogged down in the weeds that might otherwise keep him from having the civil discourse and friendly outrage that made that meeting with Trump a touchdown. Now, here's a slightly strange story, but it made the news last week. It seems that female-to-male transgender people who still menstruate are feeling compromised and discriminated against because they can't find feminine hygiene products, in other words, sanitary napkins or tampons, in the public men's rooms that they visit. And beyond that, they claim that because these products are marketed to women, they feel oppressed, harmed, and triggered when they see them in the stores. They say that when the products are considered women's products, they feel alienated and may even avoid purchasing them altogether. OMG, as they say. What in the world? Well, there are several solutions to this problem. In the first place, and I've talked about this before, when you are a member of a small minority, you might want to consider that the majority is likely to carry the weight when it comes to marketing or any other issue that brings you in contact with the public. And in the second place, to say that the trans community represents anything but a small, a very small minority would be to exaggerate a whole lot. According to the statistics from a variety of studies that were amazingly consistent, there are approximately 1.4 million adults in the United States who consider themselves transgender. That represents 0.6% of the population. 0.6. And yet, they are demanding that the other 330 million people in the U.S. must be sensitive to them to the extent that we need to adjust our most personal and sensitive areas of our lives to accommodate theirs. I too have lived my life as a member of a very small minority, only not one related to sexual identity. But I recognized very early that if I wanted to find a balance in my life in the greater world, I needed to be willing to compromise. I never felt the need to demand that people accommodate to my needs, but rather 
I accepted the fact that most other people in my world were different from me. I got it. And I adjusted and compromised, and I never felt the need for a safe space and never felt compromised or oppressed because of it. The solution for female-to-male transgender people who still menstruate is relatively simple once you understand that you are in a very small minority and not everyone is going to be willing to accommodate to your wishes. So here it is. Don't expect to find a tampon machine in the men's room. Tampons are meant for women. But here's the thing. You can carry a tampon with you. It's very small and it can be carried discreetly. No one needs to know. And if you don't make a big deal out of it, no one else will either. Accept that you live in a world that isn't always fair and make the best of it. This is a crazy show. We talk about almost anything. And now we have to take a short break, but I'll be back in a minute and we'll talk about some more crazy stuff like, you just can't make this stuff up. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our response to active shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. Our response to active shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our response to active shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now, here's a story, something I remember from my early days in Massachusetts. You know, eastern Massachusetts is heavily populated with clusters of towns and cities and connecting highways between them. But western Massachusetts is something else entirely. It's largely rural with large areas of woodlands and fields and farm. Now, I mention this because Western Massachusetts has become a magnet for people trying to flee the big cities for the rural life. Now, there was a situation, and probably more than one, that arose from such a move. You can imagine a family moved from their metropolitan apartment and brought some property in Massachusetts, open farmland. But they weren't there long when they filed a lawsuit against their neighbor, a farmer, 
for making farm noises, moving his cows, running his tractor at seven o'clock in the morning. Now, if you're a farmer or if you know one, you know that the cool in the morning is exactly the best time to be moving your, your herds and running your equipment in the fields. But these city folks just couldn't stand the country sounds that went with life in the country. And they wanted to bring some of their city laws to rural Massachusetts. Well, the same thing is happening today out west. If you've listened to my show before, you know I talk a lot about California. I don't love the place. In fact, I can't understand why anyone wants to live there. Oh, I know the weather's great, but the taxes, the intrusive laws, the homeless people taking over the city, the homeless people taking over the city sidewalks, and so on. But apparently there are others who are coming around, and apparently there are others who are now coming around to my way of thinking, and they are moving away from California in droves. Well, many of them, it seems, are moving to Texas, and for some reason, Austin, Texan, Austin, Texas appeals to them. But here's the thing. Whatever they were trying to escape from in California, they are recreating in Texas. They're bringing their California hyper-liberalism and their community activism. And they're trying to recreate their blue, they're trying to recreate, and they're trying to recreate their blue California mentality in red Texas. So the story is short, but it's about how a city that used to call itself Weird Austin, which reflected the funky offbeat culture of the city, which is the capital of Texas, how that city is changing. California is moving to Texas. Listen to this. It's hard to, (laughs) it's really hard to explain, but last July, the Austin City Council approved an ordinance that allows, wait for it, homeless people to sleep and camp in public spaces. And Austin's Mayor Steve Adler approved the measure. But what has this ordinance wrought? It has produced tent cities for the homeless and a surge in violent crime. This policy, allowing people to set up camp on Austin's sidewalks, does nothing to solve the growing problem of affordable housing in the city and homelessness on the streets. Instead, it has endangered the community. It's destroying the very attributes of the city that once brought thousands of tourists there every year. And it actually perpetuates homelessness. When wealthy Californians buy property in Austin. They create a market that raises the price of real estate. They make homes less affordable for everybody else. It happened in California and it's happening in Austin. Except that the homeless living on the streets with the accompanying needles and trash and human waste on the street will eventually make this city unlivable. This isn't rocket science, my friends. How in the world would any intelligent people willingly opt into this? Do we need to find a solution for homelessness? Of course we do. But it needs to be one that makes sense, one that will help the homeless 
not just give them a tent, not just give them a tent and park them on the sidewalk. So here's an idea. If you live in California and you want to move to Texas, think about adopting the culture. Think about adopting the culture that brought you to Texas instead of bringing all the things from California that made you run away. You just can't make this stuff up. Now, back to the news. Crazy Mother Nature is making news everywhere, and not only here in America. We've already talked about the fires in Australia, but how about the flooding in Venice, Italy? Have you heard about that? It was back in November when historically high tides flooded the canals and squares of that famous Italian city. And in some places, people could only venture out in thigh-high boots. A state, of a state of emergency was declared for the city as the dangerously high tides invaded cafes, stores, and hotels. The water level hit six and a quarter. The water level hit 6.14 feet, and the high tides reached the second highest level ever recorded in the city. Ever recorded in the city. Some historic sites were damaged by the water, including the crypt beneath St. Mark's Basilica, which was inundated by three feet of water because of the floods. It was only the second time in history that the church had been flooded. The damage from the floods will probably reach hundreds of millions of euros. It was monumental, and Venice's Mayor Luigi Brugnaro blamed the flooding, guess what, on global warming. Well, now, two months after the floods, the canals are dry due to historic low tides. The famous canal boats are stranded in the mud that has been exposed by the absence of water. And last week, and last week throughout the United States, so I'm not sure how the mayor would explain this. I get the global warming, the rising of the seas and all that. We've heard about it many, many times. But how do you explain, but how do you, how do you explain the record low tides that have drained the canals, the famous canals in Venice. Now, last week, throughout the United States, crazy weather kept everyone on their toes. The temperatures were hot and cold. There were fierce winds, killer tornadoes, torrents of rain, sleet, and snow. Temperatures in the Midwest dropped 30 degrees in a matter of hours as a warm front that brought 60-degree temperatures hit an Arctic blast that brought in below freezing temperatures. The system swept from the northwest to the southeast, and the damage was extensive. It delivered ice, snow, rain, winds, and tornadoes, and the number of crashes on the roads was unbelievable. There were also historic floods in Israel this past week. Heavy rains drenched the country from the Lebanese border to the southern Negev Desert. The rain caused massive flooding in which several people were killed. Rain can be very dangerous in Israel, 
where normally dry ravines can suddenly fill with water and rush across a road with enormous force and actually carry vehicles whose drivers were caught unaware or who tried to drive through it. Israelis are constantly warned not to cross such a wash, but there are always those who think they can make it. All too frequently, they don't. In 2018, for example, a group of 25 students were caught in a flash flood as they hiked through a canyon near the Dead Sea. Ten of them were washed away and drowned. Tel Aviv received more than three inches of water last week in just a couple of hours. Tel Aviv received more than three inches of rain in just a couple of hours last week. That's more than 10% of their average annual rainfall in just two hours. In fact, Israel is usually dry, although winter is their rainy season. But these rains are truly of biblical proportions, and it couldn't happen in a more appropriate place. You know, when I was still living in Jerusalem, I can remember one year that we had a record amount of snow. There must have been something close to a foot of snow. The Sea of Galilee filled up to overflowing, and... And something extraordinary happened as a result of all of this precipitation. The Dead Sea. The hills surrounding the Dead Sea, which are known which which are known for their barrenness, was bursting with color from flowers that had been dormant from flowering plants that had been dormant for decades. I will bet that this spring will bring the same miracle to the shores of the Dead Sea that I saw way back. In just two hours. <clears throat> you know, before we leave Israel, I remember when I lived in Jerusalem during the Gulf War, and the following year when Israel was hit, by a magnificent winter storm. The Sea of Galilee was filled to overflowing and the streets in Tiberias were flooded. And Jerusalem, which barely receives any snow at all, was gifted by eight inches of snow, the most it had seen in 20 years. Schools and businesses were closed. So were many of the roads and snowball fights were the order of the day. But the thing I remember most about this storm was what happened afterwards. When spring came, the hills overlooking the Dead Sea, which are usually brown and barren except for occasional desert plants growing in the cracks, this year they burned this year they burst into a bouquet of color. This year they burst into a riot of color as seeds which had been dormant for years exploded with life and carpeted the earth with a mass of color that lasted for several weeks before the heat of, that lasted with a mass of color that la <clears throat> with a mass of color that lasted for several weeks before the heat of summer drove them back into the ground to wait for another historic winter storm well this spring may just deliver another miracle of color along the shores of the dead sea if you will be in Israel this spring, be sure not to miss it. I promise you it's well worth the trip.
Now here's a little tidbit that might interest you. Did you know that about 20% of the people who attend President Trump's huge rallies are self-described independents and Democrats? 20%. What do you suppose that means with regard to the upcoming elections? Who are these people who stand in line for hours, subject themselves to the huge crowds, usually numbering in tens of thousands of people, who describe themselves as Democrats? There are some interesting stories embedded in these numbers, I'm sure, and I'd love to know some of them. So for another story this week, this one's interesting. Have you ever sat and watched afternoon television? Did you ever watch a show called Jeopardy? It's been in the news a lot lately because its moderator, Alex Trebek, who's been the moderator of this show forever, has been fighting a courageous battle against pancreatic cancer. But the show hit the news for another reason this week. Trebek provided an answer, and the contestant who responded got it wrong. Now, if you're not familiar with the show, it's like this. Jeopardy! is a quiz show. There are three panelists who get to answer questions. As with most shows like this, the person who gets the most correct answers wins. But the trick is that the moderator says the answer and the contestants have to ask the question. So let's say the moderator might say, this is a type of wagon with three wheels. And the answer would be, what is a wheelbarrow? So the question that raised such a controversy was this. Built in the 300s AD, the Church of the Nativity, unquote. And apparently, the form of the question is incorrect. It probably should have been more like, built in the 300s AD, the Church of the Nativity is here. But the real controversy was not with the question. It was with the answer. The contestant, Katie Needle, answered, What is Palestine? And Trebek called that wrong. The next contestant answered, What is Israel? And his answer was called correct. What a firestorm erupted from that. Well, the real problem here is that they opened up a can of worms over an issue that decades of efforts on the part of many world leaders have yet to solve. And it's not a simple story. The people the world calls Palestinians claim the West Bank as theirs, and the city of Bethlehem lies within the West Bank. But Israel also claims the West Bank as part of its territory, and at least for the present, there is no country of Palestine, only a region whose borders have yet to be determined. In my humble opinion, the correct answer should have been, what is Bethlehem? And the controversy would have been avoided. It's a pity, really, because a show that is supposed to be fun for both participants and viewers suddenly got political. Twitter users immediately began to weigh in, and many blamed Jeopardy for, quote, siding with Israel, unquote. We've talked about this issue before, and no doubt we'll do it again. But for the moment, a bit of thought could have avoided what became a very uncomfortable situation for everyone involved. 
Well, we've just about run out of time again this week. I must say it has been an interesting week, packed full of things happening all around the world. News is history in the making. And you know, I love the time we spend together talking about the history of the future, because that's what the news of today really is. I hope you have a good week, and I look forward to spending this hour with you again next week. And remember, if you have a comment or something you'd like to say, drop me a line, an email, at alana at freedmanreport.com. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.